and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We are taping this week on Thursday, January 27th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Kennan of Politico and the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Hi, everybody. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. Later in this episode, we'll have an interview with Diana Green Foster of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health at the University of California, San Francisco. She's also the lead researcher of the Turnaway Study, a comprehensive look at the lives of women who sought abortions and did or in some cases didn't get them. The study is, shall we say, more relevant than ever as the Supreme Court looks like it's about to roll back abortion rights. But first, this week's health news. So I thought we wouldn't talk about the Supreme Court this week because the first Thursday that is not a decision day in the last several. And then Justice Stephen Breyer announced that he'd be stepping down. Breyer has been a reliable moderate to liberal. He wrote the majority opinion in Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt. That was the 2016 Supreme Court case that upheld, perhaps for the last time, Roe v. Wade. Assuming Democrats in the Senate are successful in replacing him, which really is an if in the 50-50 Senate, it won't change the fact that conservatives will still have a six-vote supermajority on the Supreme Court. So why is his stepping down so important for right now? He's 83 years old. That's, um, that's, that's an important reason. From our perspective, he seems to be in good health, but I think there's been pressure on him to retire. The court is 6-3. Were he to hang on and then have a health crisis and not, you know, when we get closer to the 24 election or after the 2024 election, it would be much more of a battle than it is today. It will be a battle, but how much, we don't know. It is not a change in power. It's a centrist, left liberal justice who would presumably be replaced by another liberal justice, perhaps more liberal, but it wouldn't change the 6-3. Manchin has not been opposed to Biden court nominees so far. And there is the possibility of getting a couple of Republicans, not many, but it's not impossible to get to see a scenario. But it's also, you know, it's a broken Congress and a broken country. And there'll be, you know, there'll be a fight. Is it brief symbolic fight? Or is it a Congress being what Congress has become for months? It's too soon to know. It could be relatively brief. Biden has vowed that that he's going to appoint a black woman. There has never been a black woman on the Supreme Court. Manchin, who, as you point out correctly, has not opposed the Biden's judicial nominees up till now, is going to be obviously under intense pressure from anti-abortion advocates who would like to have a seventh vote of the on the nine Supreme Court justices. Although, because this is not going to be a shift in power, maybe they won't. I guess it all sort of remains to be seen. Um, But one thing that it's clearly going to do is complicate an already crowded election year schedule on Capitol Hill, where the Senate Finance Committee, uh, Chairman Ron Wyden, looks to be starting over on the Build Back Better legislation by focusing it on health care and energy tax credits. We also have breaking news just from this morning. The administration's announced that 14 and a half million people have signed up for coverage under the Affordable Care Act on the marketplaces, with uh, the enrollment still open in half a dozen dozen states, including California. They obviously 
credit that in large part to the enormous subsidies that were created in last year's legislation, which means that the Democrats are going to be under enormous pressure to continue those subsidies, to continue. So many of those 14 and a half million people won't discover right before the midterm elections that uh, their subsidies are going away. So do we think that what Wyden is talking about is sort of the beginning of what the sort of final legislation, assuming they can get it, is going to look like? I actually just had an article published last night that was kind of looking at the the drug pricing, healthcare aspect of Build Back Better and what happens to it. And pretty much everybody I talk to, and it, it ranges from people who on all sort of sides of the debate believe that if Congress is able to get a smaller reconciliation package done this year, healthcare is likely going to be in it. And they talk about the drug pricing reform and the ACA subsidies. And people probably remember the drug pricing negotiations and so forth. There's a big savings. So that can be used to help fund the other healthcare priorities. So there's obviously questions about, as we know, they couldn't get like the bigger Build Back Better package done. And there's questions that come up as to, you know, if you pull things out, what Democrat does that, you know, annoy? And how do you kind of figure out all those things to get people who maybe were okay with something because something else was in there and now it's not. But most people seem pretty confident that healthcare goes if this kind of, if a smaller social spending bill goes. It strikes me as literally the last things Democrats would need would be to have to have this record enrollment in the Affordable Care Act and have those subsidies disappear on November 1st of 2022, right as people are starting to sign up and right as they're going to the polls for the midterms. I, it's hard to imagine Democrats seeing that as anything but a disaster. Yeah, I mean, people have talked to me, have said that, you know, it'd really be political malpractice for them not to pass some of this health care reform if they have a chance, because they've been campaigning on it for so many years. There's a good chance the House or Senate doesn't stay Democratic after the midterm. So if they really want to follow through, this may be their last chance for a while. Yes, and I think they know that, but this is the Senate that we're talking about. So they don't ever do anything until they have to. They're the ultimate, you know, college students. I will I will study three hours before the test. And then ask for an extension. Yeah. Yes, and then ask for an extension. Over on the other health committee in the Senate, the Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, Chairwoman Patty Murray and Ranking Republican Richard Burr have put out a discussion draft of a bill that would re-engineer the federal public health apparatus to better prepare it for the next pandemic, of which there clearly will be one. Um, what are some of the big ideas here, and would they work, and what are the chances that this makes it across the finish line, obviously, given that Burr is retiring. So it's his last chance to put his mark on public health. And I see you nodding. I think in terms of some of the bigger things that are in there, there's a lot of focus on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Probably kind of the splashiest piece being that the CDC director would be confirmed by the Senate, um, which has not been the case before. And then there's things about data collection, which clearly the U.S. has been very bad at throughout the pandemic. Very slow at. Yeah, slow. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're just not seen as a, a leader on that at all. And the states have taken up a lot of that. You know, it's a patchwork, so some states don't do so well as others do. And there's a lot of trying to shore up the strategic national stockpile, which we've also seen has struggled throughout the pandemic. And I think that I would assume to some Republicans who may otherwise be, you know, 
against any legislation getting through in, in some sense, because it is making the CDC and the director particularly more accountable. Um, and I think that that's something that everyone has wanted to, to push for, particularly given that it seems that Rochelle Walensky currently is, you know, making a lot of decisions kind of on her own and then tells the White House and then that's what happens. So, um, you know, I, I could see some appeal, whether there's the ability to get it done before Burr is gone, um, is a, especially given all the things you just talked about, Justice Breyer and other things that need to get passed. I, that's a big question. I don't know if that can happen. I saw this and I smiled because I thought, you know, after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, which were, you know, three weeks apart um, back in 2001, Congress actually buckled down and did a lot of work on public health and a lot of work on bioterrorism and a lot of work on pandemic planning. We knew even in 2001 that there was going to be a pandemic. And Burr was in the middle of all of that. I mean, he did a lot of that legislation. He's, he really has. When he leaves, he will have left his mark on, I don't want to just say the public health service because that includes other agencies, but really the, the major public health apparatus in this country. And I'm wondering if that might be a push to actually get something like this done. Maybe maybe Congress can behave not like the uh, college student waiting until the last minute. One thing I checked on when this proposal came out from Murray and Burr the other day was, when was the last time they reauthorized that pandemic legislation that you were mentioning, the Pandemic All-Hazard Preparedness Act? And for better or worse, for Burr, that was in 2019. So it doesn't need to be reauthorized for a while. That would be an obvious vehicle to do it because they may need, you know, a bigger legislative vehicle. But uh, I mean, obviously, COVID-19 perhaps is enough of an impetus. And this has been something that Burr has really pushed for a long time. Um, although on the flip side of it, um, one thing Republicans have not been great at. Every appropriation cycle is funding the CDC and increasing funding for CDC. So I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic moving forward. Unlike agencies like NIH um, and other health agencies, which tend to be popular on both sides of the aisle, CDC has not been. And this is very CDC heavy legislation. And actually, in the past, there's been at least some support for CDC on the Republican side, because there's been at least one Republican senator from Georgia, which there isn't anymore. So, I mean, I think that probably is going to go into this, too, um, because obviously the, the vast majority of CDC staff is in Atlanta unlike the rest of the HHS. Julia just mentioned the, the bioterror preparedness bill that went through, law that went through after 9-11 and anthrax. Um, it was a dual-use bill. In other words, it was easier to get it through Congress, calling it a bioterror defense bill. It was, it was Friston Kennedy, Senator Friston, Senator Edward Kennedy. But it was designed in a way to be dual-use, so that if you give the states money for biopreparedness, they did it in a way that also was, you know, Julie and I remember Senator Frist was very concerned about hantavirus at that point that seemed to be on his mind. Um, so it was for what you do for bioterror and this preparedness in the states is overlaps with what you need to do with any natural biohazard in the state, a pandemic or, or some other kind of outbreak. But then in you know the Great Recession, they rolled back again. So they didn't finish what they set out to do in the early 2000s, and then they cut back. So yes, the CDC has never been the darling of Congress, and NIH gets a lot more love. And even it has its ups and downs in funding, but it recently has had another surge of funding. And even if this gets through, you know, do they stick with it? Do they put the money in year after year? Because public health has to be year after year. You don't fund it for this year and say, okay, we did it. It's ongoing. By, by definition, surveillance and preparation is ongoing. 
it was 20 years ago that they last sort of did a big push on public health. And you can't wait two decades between these. All right. Well, let us turn to COVID. Um, Last week, we talked about what the Biden administration has managed to accomplish or not in its first year. And I specifically left COVID out of that discussion because I thought it deserved its own discussion. Um, Handily enough, we got several big think pieces about just this subject over the weekend from the New York Times and Politico and the Financial Times, to name a few. The basic thrust of those pieces is that putting scientists back in charge was not enough, that our public health agencies, specifically the CDC, FDA, and NIH, may need a a major rethink, at least in terms of how to handle a pandemic. So I want to go around the table. I want each of you to say what you think the biggest COVID achievement has been for this administration and what its biggest miss has been. Joanne, why don't you start? Well, clearly they put vaccine vaccination on, on a really strong footing at the beginning of the administration. The first six months or so were quite good. They got a lot of people vaccinated fast and exceeded a lot of their own goals. So sort of the first six months were on track and I, we all felt more optimistic by June, July. But they, they made, you know, a really fatal mistake and then they made it again, which is they didn't expect COVID to totally go away, but they thought it would be sort of bonfires, not forest fires. That there would be outbreaks and you could rush in and stamp them out and not let it get out of control. And they knew there, you know, they knew there might be variants, but they really underestimated the variant threat. They didn't, you know, they were talking about, well, there could be variants, but they weren't planning for there could be variants. And Delta came and hit way worse than they anticipated than a lot of private sector science or, you know, other outside the White House scientists as well. And then again, you know, after not being prepared for for Delta, then they weren't prepared for, for Omicron. They weren't prepared. I mean, by then they knew that they weren't going to get everybody vaccinated. They should have done better on uh, therapeutics or medicine and, and testing, and they didn't. And, you know, now we're going into what is hopefully a lull, maybe a really long lull, but they damn well <laughs> better understand that this virus is capable of sending one curveball after another. You know, if we buy a lot of tests and we end up throwing them out, great. <laughs> But we can't assume that when we get out of this, you know, that it's suddenly time to dance. Yeah. Anna. You know, I think what they've done right side is, you know, you feel the seriousness of of what, you know, of the virus. It's no longer a joke in the White House and people are wearing their masks and, and things like that. And I think that sends a message and is supportive throughout the country. I agree completely, though, with what Joanne said, that they missed on a lot of it. And so that seriousness hasn't exactly translated into certainly getting it under control in any way. And you mentioned putting the scientists back in charge hasn't exactly worked. I'm not sure I believe the scientists are in charge. I think that that's been really the hard part in watching all of this is it's not as overt as Trump was, but there are a lot of times where you wonder like, okay, the White House is making an announcement before the scientists have even made their decision on anything, um, or it's a small group of people and not kind of the career scientists. Um, A lot of people have noted we haven't heard from CDC that often finally did. I think it was a few weeks ago. um, They had a press conference, but it's just been the director and, and the others on the coronavirus task force. So agreeing with everything Joanne said, plus the fact that I don't really think the scientists are in charge yet. Sarah. Kind of echoing a little bit of what Anna and Joanne said, I think they've definitely made improvements from the Trump administration on kind of aligning the political leadership and the White House, the scientists, and they seem much more like they're on the same team. They're sending the same messages. You don't have Anthony Fauci standing behind, you know, one of our political leaders at a press conference, kind of like trying not to roll his eyes or grimace 
they've certainly kind of had a different stance and made progress in that way. I definitely agree with Joanne that a huge failure in the U.S. has been not planning for some of what we knew could be very bad future steps in the virus and in this pandemic. Um, And that's kind of a theme that we alluded to before, which is the U.S. doesn't fund public health very much when we're not in a fire situation and we don't think about it much when we're not in a fire situation. But I think the other thing to emphasize, too, is we just really haven't paid enough attention to the global need to respond to COVID and that, you know, no matter how vaccinated the U.S. is, these huge swaths of the world that are unvaccinated or don't have the resources to tackle COVID are going to be a threat to us for a long time. We've seen a little bit of shift recently in the administration thinking more about that, but they did the booster rollout. That was very controversial because the question is, you know, what is more beneficial to the U.S.? Is it more people around the world having more first shots or more people in the U.S. having um, second or third shots? And the White House has sort of always said, well, we can do both, but it's not clear that's actually happening in reality. So, all right, well, I get to go last. And I mean, I think the one thing the administration has done uh, pretty well is actually get things and money out the door, which um, is not an easy thing, which I don't think they get very much credit for. And I know there's lots of fights about money and it's not always in the right place and it's not always gotten where it's supposed to go. But compared to the Trump administration, I think they've done a way better job, obviously, at getting, you know, PPE to, to healthcare workers and getting vaccines and getting the National Guard to, to help, you know, even direct traffic and now help in hospitals. Um, I think, and I this will come as no surprise to anybody, I think the biggest failure has been on communication, that there has just not ever been a single message. And obviously, it's hard to have a single message here. But you can at least say that, hey, the, the virus keeps changing, we're going to have to change with it. And instead, you get all these, you know, sort of what look like flip flops, you know, oh, well, so and so said this last month, it's like, he was talking about something completely different. So I feel like, the communication is still lacking. And that's such a basic piece of public health. I'm still surprised that two years in, we still do not do not have this handled. Um, uh, And speaking of failure to communicate, it seems that people for whom the CDC has recommended a fourth vaccine dose, those with compromised immune systems, have been turned away at many pharmacy counters by workers who obviously haven't read the guidelines. This is obviously upsetting to those who risk themselves by going to a public place and standing in line only to be told no. Apparently, according to my KHN colleague Liz Zabo, who broke the original story, the CDC had a conference call with pharmacies yesterday to reiterate that these people are eligible for a fourth dose. But again, even though I know things are changing fast, why can't we communicate this stuff? I was just going to say that Liz talked about it a a little bit in her story that, you know, the pharmacists were asking for a clear, just give us like a sheet that tells us exactly who should be getting what. And, you know, it is kind of amazing that that isn't out there. Why we can't do it, I guess I I don't know the answer to that. But um, that was kind of a rhetorical question. (laughs) So and just to be clear, actually, when Liz first raised this issue on Twitter, where she was hoping that as the U.S. thought about whether we did or didn't need fourth booster shots, you know, that they would focus on immunocompromised people first. And I was like, I had this little flicker in my brain. I'm like, wait, I think they actually have already done that. But, I, I, you know, there's so much going on. And I checked and they actually did this in October. You had to be six months out sort of from your last shot to get it. So at that point, like very few people, if anybody was eligible. And so people really have just started becoming eligible. I think a lot of the confusion stems from immunocompromised people were actually the first people where the CDC and FDA cleared additional shots 
But at that point, it was really tied into the booster debate. I actually wrote a headline like, don't call it a booster, because for them, what they said was you need three shots of the mRNA vaccines to be sort of have your initial series that immunocompromised people needed it three shots and then technically the fourth is the booster versus for non-immunocompromised people you get two shots and the third shot is a booster and I don't think that's been communicated very well. No, it has not. <laughs> and that's also led to confusion because you want to make sure in cases the booster shot is not the same dose as the original shot and you want to make sure the immunocompromised population is getting three full doses <laughs> before you might get that smaller booster shot. But yeah, it just seems like something the CDC never really kind of advertised since that initial decision. And that's come back to haunt them now that people are actually eligible. Yeah, I said yet another example of failure to communicate. Sorry, <laughs> Anna. It, I was just in that vein going to say it seems like we need a whole rework of what we're calling vaccines and vaccinated. Like we're still saying fully vaccinated when that can mean so many different things. Um, so I think that's another communication challenge that could be addressed if you know they sat down and, and worked it out. Yes. That's, and, you know, I realize it is hard to rebuild a plane while you're flying it. Right. I get that. <laughs> yeah. But but there's a point that if pieces are falling off, you're going to have to do something. <laughs> so, well, one place the administration apparently is making some belated progress is on rapid testing, albeit as the Omicron wave starts to recede in many of the most hard hit areas of the country. Meanwhile, we got an actual answer to why Medicare, whose patients are among those most vulnerable to COVID, isn't included in the free government test program. It turns out that Medicare doesn't cover most over-the-counter uh, medications, of which this is considered one, and Medicare is set up to pay providers, so it's hard for them to reimburse patients. Um, now there's a push to figure out how to include Medicare in the free test program. Uh, is there any chance this is going to happen, maybe as part of legislation to lower the Part B premium in light of the uh, non-coverage and cut-in price of Aduhelm, which sort of artificially boosted the Part B premium? Are we, is that, could we see that folded into something? I, I'm not really sure if Congress has gotten anywhere near thinking about dealing with the, the Part B stuff for Aduhelm and legislation. But the other thing I'm not clear on, too, is right now it seems like a lot of members of Congress are pressuring the administration to do something about the testing issue in Medicare. And that's a question I still have in terms of can does Medicare have any leverage and under certain pandemic authorities to just adjust the rules on their own? Or does Congress need to step in? And I haven't seen any clarity from lawmakers that they think it's on their plate. They seem to be right now hoping that the administration, the administration does it. will do it. Right. First of all, I mean, theoretically, Congress could pass a really narrow law bipartisan on this. But when does anything Congress do is stay simple? I mean, and theoretically, they could. They, they could just have a bipartisan agreement to write something that's you know, four paragraphs long and voice vote it, right? Do it. But the other thing is Medicare apparently can't, they can't change the law on their own. We don't think there's executive power to just get around it. But they are making the tests available in, in community health centers and some other places. They could make more of a concerted effort. But again, this has to do with communication, you know, to make them available for anyone 65 and over much more easily, you know, at doctor's offices and pharmacy. They're doing some They of could this. send they, them to senior centers. They could, get, they could, I'm not sure how much seniors are going out to senior centers right now. Yeah, that's now, true. Right? Good I point. mean, they're not going, mm -hmm. they're sort of, a lot of them are closed. But they could find a way of making them more widely available or having pharmacies always reserve some of the ones they have for giveaway to 65 and over. I mean, it wouldn't be perfect, but, you know, have Meals on Wheels distribute them. I mean, that wouldn't get everybody either, but that would help with the homebound. There, there are ways that you could, 
could distribute them more widely. But of course, since we don't have a lot, you don't want to distribute them in places where they're going to sit around. But they, they haven't thought about this enough. You know, they yes. could, <laughs> Clear, clearly they could do the, more. The plane is flying. Um, well, so after last Friday's March for Life anti-abortion demonstration here in Washington on Sunday, anti-vaxxers held their own, albeit considerably smaller demonstration, which featured, among other things, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., noted anti-vaccine activist, saying things are worse today for Americans than they were for Anne Frank, a comment for which he was later forced to apologize. But more seriously, anti-vaxxers have for decades been sort of come from both the left and the right fringe of politics. Yet now I feel like they're becoming part of the Republican coalition. Anna, I guess this is where I call on you for to talk about your extra credit, right? Well, yeah, I think it's sort of being tied up with individual freedom, clearly. And, and that does tend to come more from the right than the left in that sense. And so, you know, the extra credit, it's an Associated Press story by Michelle Smith. And the title is Howie Kennedy Built an Anti-Vaccine Juggernaut Amid COVID-19. So talking about Robert Kennedy's son, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who he has this charity called the Children's Health Defense Fund, which I didn't even realize it was his. I get lots of emails from them throughout the day that um, I try not to open so I don't raise my blood pressure. But he also wrote a book. And so he's going everywhere trying to talk about this book saying, if 300 of you, it was a, a meeting that they were having, if 300 of you buy this now, I could be at the top of the bestseller list, we'll really stick it to Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And so it's, there's just, a, there's a lot of anger that he's able to tap into at the left. And it, it's just tied up in, in so much. And I feel like Sarah, in a way, is going to talk about this with her extra credit, pointing it towards a person. Um, and so it's a, it's just a really interesting look at um, how this is all funded, the tactics he He's using in this misinformation campaign, and they really took a deep dive. And I think that that's that's something important to do um, because you know, without them having to say it, you just connect the dots to the fact that he's making a lot of money off of these people who believe him. And I just, you know, I feel like the anti-vax movement, the, the strengthened anti-vax movement is going to outlive the pandemic, which worries me greatly. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's always been an anti-vax movement in this country, and there have been some people on the left and some people on the right for different reasons. But the particularly on the right, though not exclusively, it has merged or blended with this red-hot anger. I don't want to say that the anti-vaxxers and the January 6 people are the same. They are not, but there's an overlap, and there's an energy that overlaps and a fury that overlaps. And there's a difference in anti-vax and vaccine hesitancy, people who are afraid as opposed to people who are militantly opposed. It's you know, more complicated than we're going to get into right here. But there is this strain that is becoming mixed in with other forms of political disaffection and anger and fury was the word. I mean, it's dangerous going forward for public health and for other things. I was going to say, we've already seen some attempts by like states and more local politicians and stuff to try and use this to implement other laws and bills and so forth that would make it harder for school districts and other places to mandate vaccines for a whole range of illnesses that we've long required and basically eliminated in this country because of these vaccine requirements. So it is, it's pretty scary to think about um, what could happen if this becomes 
you know, something where we start allowing lots of children and so forth to not be vaccinated against other preventable diseases. I mean, we've seen what's happened in a lot in some of these anti-vax sort of, you know, pockets of the U.S. where, you know, that suddenly we're having measles outbreaks. This obviously predated the pandemic. There's a reason that these childhood vaccines are mandated in most places, because if you don't have them, these diseases come back and people forget how terrible a lot of these diseases actually are. You know, they think of them as being, you know, not a big deal. But, you know, like like COVID, some some percentage of people of particularly kids who get them are going to have, you know, severe uh, after effects and in some cases are going to die from them. I feel like the pandemic is pushing back. Public health is not only going to come out not stronger, it's going to come out weaker from this pandemic, which is, I think, a concern that public health again, is not thinking about because they're too busy fighting the fire that's in front of them. All around well, have, them. Yes, and around them. Well, I have, I have one workforce issue that, uh, that I want to bring up. I was going to have a longer discussion about workforce, but we're running out of time. A hat tip to my KHN colleague, Jordan Rao, for picking up on this. In Wisconsin, one hospital sued another when basically most of its radiologists decamped from one to the other. The details aren't entirely clear, but it seems that one doctor got a good offer, told his colleagues they got similar offers, and the original hospital declined to match the offers, but then tried to block the doctors from going to their new jobs, saying it would jeopardize the original hospital's ability to serve trauma patients. Uh, Apparently, the judge in case is not buying this, but I wonder if we're going to start seeing more things like this. There are already a lot of non-compete clauses in doctor's contracts to prevent exactly this sort of thing, but these doctors were not under contract. They were at-will employees and therefore free to leave. I mean, is it, we're hearing so much about the shortage of health workers. Are places going to start just sort of grabbing in total work workers from other hospitals and then leaving those other hospitals high and dry. I think that's definitely a possibility. And, you know, their other option is a traveling nurse, which is, you know, I'm sort of surprised they didn't give a competitive offer because if you're looking to fill places, you're paying 300% more. The the pay for a traveling nurse is a lot more. So um, and traveling doctors, yeah. And doctors, I mean, yeah. And right. And this, and this is part of the frustration of the workforce is that they're working side by side with people who are getting paid multiples of what they're getting paid. And they're basically suckers for being loyal to their facilities. Yeah. And but I and I, I do wonder, you know, should we reach the end of this pandemic, how this all plays out? Because right now traveling, I don't feel like means you're, you're having to go very far. You can go down the street to the next hospital or something like that that needs workers. That's going to change at some point, possibly, if you know the, if more people come into the workforce, that traveling means going farther and that may be less appealing to people down the road. As in public health, this is a piece of an, of an existing workforce problem that the pandemic is making worse. And I wonder if, you know, when the pandemic recedes, we're still going to have this, you know, the, the healthcare workforce is in what I like to say, not a good place right now. And we will we will talk about this more unless somebody wants to talk about it right now before we move on. Come back to it. Okay, we will come back to it. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with Diana Green Foster, and then we will come back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Diana Green Foster, who's a professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Services at the University of California, San Francisco, and director of research at the study group Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health. Welcome to What the Health. 
Thank you so much for having me, Julie. So you are the lead researcher of the Turnaway Study, a longitudinal analysis of what happens to women who seek abortions and either get them or are unable to get them. This could not be more relevant than ever if the court overturns Roe later this year, right? Yes, I had no knowledge that that was coming, and it's extremely unfortunate how relevant we are. So tell us why you decided to do the study and exactly what you studied. So the study was started in around 2007, when we were interested in answering the question, does abortion hurt women? And it seemed very important if that's a concern, which it was for a lot of people, to look at, well, what are the only other options available to a pregnant person who doesn't want to be pregnant is to give birth. And so we needed to look at the harms of both. And we did this by following women who were recruited from 30 abortion facilities across the country, those who were a little bit too late to get their abortion, and were turned away, and those who were just barely in time and got their procedure. And because these 30 facilities had different gestational limits, we got people who were denied abortions and who received them at exactly the same gestation, but they had gone to different clinics with different limits. What were the principal findings? We followed them for five years and to look at their mental health, to look at their economic well-being, to look at the trajectory of their lives. And what we find is no evidence of mental health harm from abortion. And in fact, the ways in which the two groups differed showed that people who were denied abortions actually had worse mental health initially in terms of higher anxiety, lower self-esteem. But the biggest differences were really in economic well-being. And that's consistent with what people tell us about their reasons for abortion, is often that they feel they can't afford to have a child or another child. And we see large and very immediate differences in economic well-being, where women who are denied abortions are more likely to be poor, less likely to be employed, more likely to say that they don't have enough money for just basic living needs. When I published those data on women's self-report, an economist at the University of Michigan named Sarah Miller reached out to me and said, I had a really great idea. Why don't you link them to credit reports, which is these, whenever you apply for a credit card, you, you find out your credit score. This is generated by a credit agency and they have all public records of your evictions, your bankruptcies, Um, how much debt you have. And what Sarah Miller was able to show was that the two groups of people, those who were denied abortions, those who received, were the same economically for the three years before they got pregnant. And the five years after, there were big differences in the chance of having a bankruptcy or eviction and in the amount of debt people were carrying. This data has been used for a number of peer-reviewed studies, right? I mean, dozens. (laughs) Yes, Uh, I think we're at 51 peer-reviewed papers because there were a lot of aspects that are super interesting that the study was able to address, like what is it like to view your ultrasound and um, what's the effect of abortion protesters? What's the effect of receiving or being denied an abortion on your education, on your life aspirations, on your relationships, on domestic violence? So there were a lot of outcomes that we were interested in. It kept us busy for quite a few years. So why hasn't all of this sort of sunk in? Why do we continue to hear that abortion harms women economically and their mental health and sometimes their physical health? We're just waiting to do this podcast. I'm hoping you're going to get the word out. (laughs) Um, I'm doing my best. It's very hard. It's so interesting that this idea that abortion hurts women has gone so far with no data. And the idea that being denied a wanted abortion hurts women has not yet carried in the same way. But I don't know, you know, maybe it takes a little while for ideas to percolate. 
And I think also we're so used to talking about abortion as this abstract political debate that we forget that there are people involved who are making this decision and they must have reasons for making this decision. And so then it shouldn't surprise us that when we try and make this decision for them, that their outcomes are worse. And we just haven't shifted to having it be a person-centered debate of the person who's pregnant and what their circumstances are and their motivations. We don't think about that. They're just a a pawn in some political fight. And that's, I think, why we haven't thought about this right. We actually, I mean, we obviously have a natural experiment going on, for better or worse, in Texas, where abortion is effectively unavailable at the moment. And the Supreme Court does what we assume they may and undermines or overturns Roe v. Wade. We're going to see a lot more women unable to get abortions. Are you going to do more? Do you think that the word will get out more? I mean, what, I guess there'll be plenty to study. Yeah, I'm gearing up to try and look at what happens when I believe, as you do, it sounds like you do, that they'll say that Roe is over. And at that point, many states will be able to ban abortion. And I think the interesting question, the turnaway study is very good for saying, what are the consequences if if women carry the pregnancy to term versus get an abortion? But it doesn't answer the question of who is it who's able to transcend their state laws and by either traveling or getting pills, and who is it who's not able to do that? And so it's not necessarily the outcomes, it's who does this affect? Who is unable to work their way around the laws? So that that, that will be the, the next chapter. I'm working on it. <laughs> okay. Diana Green Foster, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, we're back. It's time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Uh, We've heard from Anna already. Uh, Sarah, why don't you go next? So I looked at a piece by Adam Johnson who has a column on Substack called The Column. Um, It's it's called COVID is a human being. It doesn't care what you think about it. And it's sort of a really interesting piece about how politicians and others have sort of used language to create a certain anger or mindset around the virus, you know, and they basically somehow convince people that, you know, it's not COVID that's making your lives more miserable right now. It's basically people who are trying to implement public health measures and other things to control the virus. He basically talks about this idea of anthropomorphizing or making human a virus that is just not that. And Republicans have made comments like, we can't live in fear of a virus. And I thought he made an interesting comparison. Like, would anybody say that, you know, if you're in the middle of a hurricane that, you know, we can't live in fear and we should just do what we want and think nothing's going to happen to us. You know, and he also, I think, pushes back this popular kind of sentiment right now, which is people want to believe that we're in an endemic state or closer to an endemic state. And that's just not the case right now. We have overwhelmed hospitals and record numbers of deaths and so forth. And as much as you would like to, you can't will away a virus and pretend maybe your individual risk has gone down a lot, but the societal risk is still very high. It's a really good piece. Thank you. Thank you for pointing it out. 
Joanne. Uh, Jonathan Cohen in HuffPost has a story called The Rights War on Government is Working and It Could Cost Lives. And he's talking basically is jumping off the Supreme Court decision on vaccine mandates for workers that they that they struck. One of the arguments that he cites Justice Alito talking about is, you know, OSHA is not just under the mandate. It wasn't just affecting the workforce, the workplace, because you weren't just vaccinated at work. You were also vaccinated when you left work. And what Jonathan's talking about is a larger philosophical view from the right on the powers of regulation. What can the executive branch do? What can cabinet members do? Cabinets do? Cab- cabinet departments do? Um, and, you know, how, and with a lot of implications, not just for health care, but also for the environment. And many other things. I mean, this is basically the, the administrative uh, apparatus of the federal government and the, the Supreme Court's desire to, to rein it in. It's sort of, we're back to the New Deal, if you go back and, and read your history. My extra credit is a KHN story by Bryce Covert. It's called After after miscarriages, workers have few guarantees for time off or job-based help. And it starts out with an anecdote from a woman who had a miscarriage, took sick leave, worked from home, uh, as many of her colleagues were doing at the same time, and ended up getting fired. When she told her boss she stayed home because of her miscarriage, he told her, quote, when my wife had a miscarriage in the beginning of our marriage, she only took a half a day off work. And it turns out that unless you live in states with specific leave laws, you're pretty much not guaranteed time off to recover from a miscarriage even though it's supposed to be covered under the Federal Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Considering that miscarriage occurs in one of four pregnancies, that feels like a pretty big oversight. And apparently it won't be fixed by the paid leave parts of the big Build Back Better bill because those are the parts that apparently are not going to make it. So on that rather sour note, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Yang. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Sarah? I'm at Sarah Carlin. Anna? At Anna Edney. Joanne? At Joanne Kennan. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. Be healthy.